This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We have uh, talked a few weeks back about uh, Glen Abbey. Of course, Glen Abbey, uh, home of the Canadian Open for several years and uh, uh, right in the heart of Oakville in a residential area. Uh, now the owner of Glen Abbey wants to demolish it uh, and remove uh, parts of it and, uh, and leave just sort of a shell of what's there. And, uh, of course, uh, make way for homes and, and residents and, and retail and such. Uh, Oakville City Council started the debate on this and will continue tonight to get an update on all of this. Uh, Fraser Damoff is with, us, is with us, spokesperson, Save Glen Abbey, and is on the line with us now. Fraser, thank you for taking the time to join us. Give us a bit of an update. Where are we now on all of this? Yeah, thanks, Scott. So, uh, you know, it's um, an ever-evolving situation with this uh, when dealing with Coblink and um, basically where we're at now is um, after the last uh, uh, meeting where uh, Oakville Town Council um, voted to uh, designate Glen Abbey as heritage, um, Club Link has decided to go um, through a different part of the, uh, the Ontario Heritage Act um, to apply to demolish the course. And basically the long and short of this is, is that the heritage designation that was approved and voted on at the last council meeting, um, an appeal of that nature goes to the uh, Heritage Review uh, Board. But the way that Club Link's done it now, um, any appeals that are done to, uh, by the town of Oakville to uh, Club Link's um, notification that they'll be demolishing the course goes to the Ontario Municipal Board. And whether uh, you know or not, uh, the Ontario Municipal Board has a very, very, very uh, spotty track record um, when it comes to protecting and kind of uh, siding with uh, the community. Um, unfortunately, uh, it, in most cases that go to the OMB end up uh, siding with the developer, and it's, it's a, you know, got a, a nickname, Owners May Build. So it's, it's an unfortunate development, um, but uh, basically where we're at now with Oakville Council is them looking at the actual development application and voting on that. Um, after this step, it'll likely be all appeals to the Ontario Municipal Board. Uh, what was the significance of the heritage designation? What did that do for this? It basically protected uh, the course in its entirety um, while looking at different aspects of the course to determine, um, you know, where the real heritage lies, whether it's, uh, you know, sand traps here or uh, mountain grass there, all of that sort of thing. Um, would be worked out, but essentially the, the heritage designation means that the course can't be um, destroyed. Uh, it needs to be protected, and it's a piece of cultural heritage. The issue now, though, is that with Club Link going through a different part of the act, um, it, it, it basically changes who the final decision maker on this will be from the uh, Heritage Review Board to the Ontario Municipal Board. How can you pl- apply for a demolition if uh, it's been designated a heritage desi- designation? I mean, how can you? Uh, yeah, it, it's one of those weird things where. So the uh, lawyers are having the lawyers are having a field day with this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is it's one of those things where um, you know, to you and I, you designate something heritage, it's protected. But uh, you know, the way government works, there's always. Uh, they're ta- different ways to skin it. I was yeah, going to say they're, so, ta- they're taking a different yeah. route to to get to exactly. the same place. Exactly. So, uh, what city council or town council in Oakville is 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 voting on today is is this uh, permit or this uh, this want to to demolish? Obviously, if they're voting against 
you know, uh, getting rid of Glen Abbey. They're not going to they're not going to approve this. So is it just now a series of delaying techniques? Well, I mean, the the, the vote tonight is actually on uh, the the actual development application that was submitted. So the notice to demolish is separate than um, than what's happening tonight. Um, what what town council is voting on tonight is, um, you know, after reviewing the plans that Clublink submitted for that area, um, Town of Oakville staff said there's no way this should go forward, right. and uh, you know, mayor and council are, are obviously likely to vote with uh, with staff on that and uh, and reject that application. So this today, uh, for all intents and purposes, is a moot is a moot point from where the town stands. Yeah, I mean, we know. I mean, the mayor's already said he's publicly said now he'll be voting against Clublink, and yeah. um, so so basically we know that uh, that town council is likely to side with the mayor and they'll vote against that application. From here, and this is the the part that really is unfortunate, is that uh, the various appeals that happen after a municipality rejects a development application goes to the Ontario Municipal Board, mm-hmm. and. Even though there's legislation in place by uh, Premier Wynne and her government to um, scrap the OMB and modify it to make it more fair to uh, local residents, uh, from what I've been hearing, that the, that won't happen soon enough. And unfortunately, this will likely be decided uh, at the OMB, even though the OMB has no future in Ontario. Um, what uh, is anybody lobbying the OMB on behalf of Glen Abbey regarding this? I mean, y- y- many or you c- certainly paint the picture that it's a slam dunk. If OMB gets their hands on it, it'll all go to the developer. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, what can be done to prevent that? What's what sort of work are you doing to to sway that? Yeah, so it's a good question. A lot of our pressure now is turning towards the province because we've we've been we've done a, a fantastic job, uh, you know, really trying to push the mayor and council to side with us and to protect Glen Abbey, and we were successful in that. Um, now our attention is moving towards uh, the MPPs of Oakville uh, and uh, you know the Halton riding. So Kevin Flynn and uh, Indira Native Harris. Our attention needs to go to them to let them know that um, you know. They've, they've both said that the OMB is toast, uh, you know, that, that they're looking at changing it and making more fair. Um, and for a issue and, or, or as a place as sacred as Glen Abbey, um, it would be truly tragic to have um, Glen Abbey's fate decided by a board that uh, has, you know, over the years produced a lot of um, decisions that have negatively impacted communities across Ontario. So our attention is turning towards uh, the provincial level now to try and, uh, you know, make some uh, positive momentum in, in hopefully uh, having Glen Abbey saved at that level too. But, you know, it, the way it goes, unfortunately, is that, um, you know, the OMB has a very, as I said, spotty track record when it comes to siding with developers. And um, our hope is that there can be, um, you know, the town's done their homework and that there's enough in place to protect Glen Abbey uh, for future generations. Uh, y- y- where is the province on this? You talked about them making changes to the OMB. Uh, with all mm-hmm. due re- with all due respect, good luck with that one, uh, yeah. and yeah. however long that takes. Um, yeah. So you know, yeah. I, hopefully, that's not your trump card. But but has the province weighed in on this at all? I mean, uh, if the town and such is against it, uh, isn't there anything they can do? Well, see, the thing is that the the, the, to the province is committed to. Uh, significantly modifying the OMB. The only problem, though, is that that legislation won't be uh, in place before this decision. So it's one of those things where, um, you know, Clublink certainly knows that if they get this through quick enough, 
uh, the OMB will be the ones that decide on it. Um, our hope is that through uh, lobbying uh, the provincial level, that this can, um, you know, be looked at by a different body. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any beating around the bush here that if the OMB gets their hands on this development uh, or, or on this decision, it's likely to side, at least in part, with Clublink. The only saving grace we have is that um, Mayor Burton and Town Council and their staff have done a fantastic job of actually uh, crossing their T's and dotting the I's. And, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that if this ends up going to the OMB and we end up losing, um, it'll just be one of those things where we can hang our hat and say, you know what, this we did all we could, but it ended up being the OMB, uh, the unjust, unfair OMB that decided uh, to destroy this course. So it's one of those things where we have to keep putting pressure on the province because we've done a good job at the local level now. Um, and certainly, you know, I think you've seen in other uh, election years, which is coming up, the province being uh, willing to step in uh, to try and deal with issues. So, you know, our hope is that with enough attention on this course that the province will step in and try and protect it. Why is the uh, persona out there that the OMB always sides with uh, development? What What is the purpose then? Yeah, it's one of those, uh, it, it's, so to delegate to the OMB, uh, you know, the most effective uh, delegations are always uh, planners and lawyers. So it basically uh, doesn't really give much of a voice to the actual residents that live in that area. And when legislation is created in uh, around developments such as this, it, it really comes down to uh, the letter of the law and planning principles. And, you know, a lot of times only listening to lawyers and planners, you really kind of miss out on a key stakeholder group, which is the people that actually live in that neighborhood. Um, now, some people can call that, you know, nimbyism, not in my backyard, but I think one of the, the things that the province is trying to address in reforming the OMB is giving people in the local area a voice in that decision process. And right now they don't. Um, only listening to lawyers and planners you know, only gets you so far. Um, but it's, it's, you know, in that mindset that so many developers have been able to win out at the OMB, uh, even though local council and the local residents are against that development. So Glen Abbey, you know, this will take a quite a long time to get sorted out. I have no uh, doubts about that. Um, the only kind of mission we have now is to keep this on the front burner and to make sure that the province is well aware of the implications that would happen if, um, you know, if Glen Abbey's developed. And just to kind of add one more point to that, uh, one of the key things to think about here is that the province sets how many people uh, should be living in the various areas of Ontario, and they kind of direct the municipalities and the regions to build appropriately. And Glen Abbey would become a new growth area in Oakville uh, that's not planned for. So that it does. It's have not really, and it's not really an area that needs more residential homes. It doesn't at all. Yeah, it doesn't at all. <laughs> I so. mean, if anything, you need more green space. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, how, it's, does that yeah. fly? Does that does that simple statement that, that that I just does that mean anything? That what I just said? It's it's like look around. Is that planning? Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's what town the town staff came back with. And when I was speaking at council last night, I said basically that um, we need to have a, a, a planning approach based around uh, stakeholder engagement and through our mayor, council, and staff, not through the whims of any single private develop private owner. Um, you know, the, the planning process starts at the provincial level and has implications all the way down to uh, your neighborhood and mine. And just because one developer wants to cash out, uh, you know, that, that, that has massive implications from a planning perspective 
traffic perspective, green space perspective, all of this stuff. So, you know, and, and that's really what that's really you know, what it is here, Fraser, isn't it? Yeah. It's like the whole there's no more land available. I mean, everything's yeah. been sold, everything's been bought and sold, and it's just somebody yeah. cashing out. They've held on to yeah, it. Exactly. They've invested their money. Now they want to put houses on it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's yeah it's it's certainly frustrating, but you know every step of the way here. Uh, we've been pushing mayor and council and, and the, the, the powers that be to side with the local community. And so far, our track record's really good. Um, and, uh, you know, as this keeps going forward, the uh, amount of people involved in fighting this this bad development keeps growing. We're almost close to 10,000 people now. So, you know, the, the, the opposition to this development is there. Uh, and now we just have to kind of direct our, uh, our, our work uh, to the provincial level now. Fraser Damoff has been with us, spokesperson Save Glen Abbey. We'll chat later on and uh, see how this all progresses. Thanks for the time, Fraser. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Kathleen Wynne, uh, is she paying more attention uh, to the needs of Ontario business? It, it appears like she is because she's going down to Washington to uh, help us all in that whole big bad NAFTA agreement thing. So uh, why is Christine Van Gein, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Ontario director, why is she concerned about all of this? Well, let's bring her on. Hello, Christine. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Kathleen Wynne, uh, of course, went to Washington to promote free trade and, and all the advantages with Ontario in mind. Is this more help? Is this, does this help the province at all? Well, it would help if she was getting her facts straight. So uh, about two weeks ago, the Premier went down to Washington, D.C. and gave a speech about the benefits of free trade. And, of course, uh, there are lots of benefits of free trade, and, and we need politicians to give a staunch and principled uh, argument in favor of it. And that's we're in the middle of NAFTA negotiations right now. Today's the last day of round three in, in Ottawa. And it's great to see politicians like Premier Wynne stand up for it. The problem is that she got a bunch of facts wrong. So when she was in Washington, she gave a speech talking about a Ontario company that's relocating to or opening opening a new facility in Illinois. And she said that this is a NASA success story. The problem is that the company, Leland Industry, said she got all of her facts wrong. He said she has they haven't invested the $46 million in Illinois that Wynne said they have. He has no idea where she got that number. And if she wants to talk about his business, maybe she should give him a call and ask him what he's up to. Because his plan to open a facility in Illinois is because he cannot afford Kathleen Wynne's electricity here. Hmm. So that's a big difference Um from free trade. I mean, how, how did she, Christine? How did she get this mixed up? I mean, this is a train wreck. How, how do you how do you take something a company like Leland and position it like it's a success story when in fact the you know the the, the CEO of the company says no, that's we're moving there because we can't afford Ontario anymore. Not nothing to do with free trade. Well, Leland is still going to be in Ontario. It's just that they have they're expanding. They're expanding yeah. about expanding into Illinois, and and they are a success story. And NAFTA has helped them. And he's he said to me, "I'd be happy if she wants to talk about the benefits of NAFTA." But I, but but Leland has publicly said repeatedly that their desire to expand into Illinois is because they can't afford Ontario electricity, and they're part of a whole coalition of manufacturers called the Coalition of Concern Manufacturers, who 
have repeatedly said the same message, that they can't afford the minimum wage hike, that they can't afford cap and trade, that they can't afford their electricity, and they don't want to continue to invest in Ontario. If the premier had done a basic Google search of this of this company before putting it into her speech, she would have known that, let alone giving inaccurate figures about the investment that they're going to be making in Illinois, saying they've already made it. She should be talking to these businesses who are trying to talk to her, um, not not misrepresenting them. And, you know, that could be competitively sensitive information that she's revealing. It's totally inappropriate. It's very odd, too, that Leland is part of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Ontario that is the main thrust of them is, the, is trying to stop business from leaving Ontario. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these policies that the Premier has, you know, uh, cap and trade, it really hurts manufacturers. It really hurts um, people who who are living in um, in more rural areas as well and need to use more transportation. Or um, it, it also, uh, you know, gas taxes and um, the minimum wage hike and the changes to labor laws in Ontario. The Premier is doing all these things where, you know, she might as well pack up these companies' moving boxes herself and there's a big difference between driving business out of Ontario and free trade opening borders so these businesses located in Ontario can sell their, their goods across the border. Those are really different things. And if the Premier doesn't understand the difference, how can we expect her to be a good advocate for these businesses in the NAFTA negotiations? Why would she not check with this company before name dropping? Yeah, it, it's really, really strange. Um uh, Byron Nelson, who's the, the CEO of the company, said the same thing. He said he doesn't know why she didn't call, doesn't know what business the Premier has um, talking about his company without giving him a, a basic phone call to ask him some questions. Because this coalition has repeatedly wanted to, to meet with the government, and they have met with the government about their concerns. The government isn't listening to their concerns yet wants to cherry-pick information, inaccurate information, when it suits their purposes. It's, it's really strange. Would Leland rather expand in Ontario than Illinois? Yeah, I think that the, it's a company that's been based in Ontario for a really long time, and a lot of these companies have publicly said they would prefer to expand in Ontario, but they can't afford it. Um, as for what his personal preference is, I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to ask him. Um, don't be like the premier and talk about what his business was good for his business or bad for his business without, without checking with him. Um, but is this know, fake? Hey, you know what? This is almost fake news, Christine. Like, what is this? How, how can you, how can you use a company as a bouquet, uh, as a kudos when actually it's a detriment to your cause? No, they're on the other side. They're with the coalition of Ontario businesses that are trying to keep businesses in Ontario. How do you, how do you, how do you make that mistake? Yeah, it's it's pure spin. Um, it's to use them as an example of a uh, them opening, you know, them wanting to invest in Illinois instead of Ontario is a success story for Ontario. Well, did it, did any it's U.S. Bizarre. politician stand up and say, uh, Madam Premier, why is this company, this Canadian company, not investing in your province instead of coming to the United States? Well, in the in the speech, the premier was talking about, I believe it was a private meeting with right. the governor in Illinois. Um, so, uh, and of course, why would any politician in the U.S. or in any other jurisdiction say, "Oh, well, well, why would they 
not prefer to stay where you are. Of course, anyone should welcome businesses coming to their own state or their province Mm. and providing people with lots of jobs and and opportunities. That's what we should be doing in Ontario. We should be creating a business-friendly environment. Uh, The Premier doesn't understand what that means, I think. Uh, yeah, and if you're, you know, if you're in the U.S., what do you care what the problems are in Ontario as long as you're getting the buck at the end of the day? Yeah, as long as you're getting jobs, you're getting investment, that's good. It's good for Illinois. And Leland, when he, when, when the company said they were, um, going to be expanding in Illinois, he said, this is great news for our company. It's bad news for Ontario, though. Did, uh, Premier Wynn respond to what this company said? Are they just pretending they can't hear them? I mean, obviously they've used them uh, as a point of reference. Do they care what their, uh, response was? Yeah, so the, the Toronto Sun followed up on my column and they, um, they called the Premier's office and they asked, um, why are you talking about this company when they are saying these things about your government? And the Premier's office just provided a lot of spin. They referenced um, for the, the for the forty six million investment number, they referenced um, a document that's not publicly accessible that is published by the Financial Times. And um, when I spoke to Byron, the president of Leland, he said he's never spoken to the Financial Times. He doesn't know where they're getting that information and that it isn't accurate. Um, as for why the premier uh, the premier's explanation as to why she she says this is a NAFTA success story. She referenced the coalition. She said, well, the coalition of concerned manufacturers has repeatedly said Leland wants to invest in Illinois. So it is an example of free trade. I mean, they're just ignoring the coalition's entire point, which was we would all prefer to invest in Ontario if you created a business-friendly environment. So it's just spinning um, information it is. It, from the manufacturer. It, it, it's spinning other people's words. It's amazing. It, it's amazing that, uh, you know, they, they, they don't answer to the, the CEO of the company that says, no, you're using our, us as an, you know, inaccurately to, to prove your point. Uh, I can't let you go, Christine, without asking you uh, your thoughts on the uh, $5 million plus dollars that have been spent uh, educating Ontarians because they just don't realize they have um, a rebate in their hydro bill coming. I mean, this is, this is more of the same from this government. They love to spend money telling you what they want to do. They often advertise before um, policies are even in effect. Think of how much money they spent advertising the RPP. So it's more of the same, and it's a large part because they, um, you know, defanged the Auditor General's office who used to put the kibosh on advertising like Yeah, they, they changed... Ex- touch on that a little bit. So they changed the rules so you can now do this, correct? Yeah, the Auditor General used to review all government advertising to make sure it wasn't partisan. Right. Um, and I haven't seen her opinion on this most recent revelation of the $5 million on the uh, hydro changes. But on the last round of advertising, I believe she did say that that would not have been approved. She's repeatedly said that since she was defanged by this legislation, a lot of the advertising the government has run would not have been approved. It's totally inappropriate for the government to use our money, taxpayer money, to promote their own government, is it to tax- promote policies like Is it this. taxpayer money they're using for this? Yeah, I mean they're they're using tax they're using public money to promote government policies. And there's there's advertising that's legitimate. I mean, um, maybe it's a good idea to run government ads saying get your flu shot. It's not good to run use public money 
to say, look at how great my government is. That's, that's partisan. The Liberal Party should pay for it themselves. Well, obviously, the objective here is to tell people about the savings that they're getting. But wouldn't you, anybody that was concerned about that, wouldn't you just get it from opening your bill? Yeah. Why don't they put it in a statement in the bill? If they, I mean, what do you need to tell people that they've saved you money for? Other than to promote yourself, well, it's why? Why? Obvious do, in the bill. If they're going to take that money to explain, why don't they explain the energy mistake on how we got here, rather than the fact what we already know because they promoted it a lot by punting it down from twenty to thirty years, stretching out the payments. <laughs> they just refinanced the loan. So, don't we know that? Do we need five million dollars spent to tell us we've you know we've punted the loan down the road? Of course not. They should, if they're going to spend money, they should spend it on hydro relief. They should spend it on reforming the Green Energy Act so that we can afford our bills, not on telling us how great Kathleen Wynne is. Is this going to resonate? Uh, at the end of the day, there's a lot of bonbons being thrown out ahead of this uh, next election. As long as everybody's electricity rate is lower and life's better for Ontarians, will we just say, yeah, let's do it again? I mean, I think all you need to do is, is ask regular Ontarians if they think their electricity bill is reasonable, if they think in the past 10 years life has become more affordable, until the answers to those questions are, um, yeah, things are improving in Ontario, I think the Premier is in trouble. You know what still amazes me about all of this stuff, Christine, in in regards to the energy uh, file? It was all self-inflicted. Like, it wasn't as if there was a natural disaster or something happened, uh, something with the economy, something with politics, something with this, that, or world issues, what have you. This was just an overzealous government that was taking advantage of people who are environmentally conscious and just rammed it through with no sort of due diligence or cost-effectiveness, cost analysis, anything. Like, this was all totally self-inflicted for no reason. Yeah, and now we're seeing the consequence of it. We, when employers are leaving Ontario because they can't afford electricity, we all suffer because those jobs leave with them. It's not just the residential consumers who, um, you know, off-peak in the past 10 years, off-peak electricity prices have um, gone up by 150%. So, um, you know, it's not just our own bills at home that that get hurt by that. We've done, you know, it hurts businesses. We've done all these freedom information requests that show how much it hurts hospitals. When you have to, when a hospital has to spend more to keep the lights on, they have fewer resources for doctors, for nurses, for patient care and things like that. It's, it's when, um, when schools have to spend more on electricity, they have fewer resources for, for students. So it's, it's a whole um, domino effect that this government brought on itself in 2009 with the Green Energy Act. And, you know, I remember talking to the Premier on this show about this, and and all she could do was brag about how we were first. And I'm thinking, well, what's the prize in that? What do we get from being first other than all the other provinces looking at us and going, well, that's exactly how you don't do it, because this government's, you know, dead in the water. what's the advantages to being first other than we're the guinea pig, we spend too much money, uh, and, and, and of course, uh, set the bad examples? What's the advantage to being first at this? Yeah, her first is, you know, we're the first to have gotten rid of coal. But then Hydro Run 1 turns around and invests in an energy company based in the United States and owns a bunch of coal plants. So um, what are we really achieving? You know, these coal plants in the U.S. that are, um, sending emissions over the border, it's not like there's an invisible wall along the border that stops uh, pollution from, from coming across 
the the border. It it doesn't happen. The things haven't improved in that in that capacity. The only thing that's changed is our electricity bills have increased dramatically. So there hasn't been much benefit except um, two other provinces, I guess, uh, who can look at Ontario as an experiment that that failed. So I hope that they do learn that lesson from Ontario's mistake. I'm hoping. I'm hoping the prime. Min- I'm hoping the prime minister has learned something, and I'm not still convinced why the prime minister is going for a carbon tax, and yet we're going for cap and trade. Because if these two are joined at the hip, what's the deal here? The only ones going with a cap and trade is Quebec and California. So where, again, why are why isn't Trudeau and Wynn on the same page here? Um, I think that probably the prime minister knows that Ontario, the Ontario government has made its bed with, with cap and trade and it's, it's going to be a difficult program to unwind. Um, I, there's a strong case for unwinding it, obviously. Um, there's a lot of hidden costs and, and people don't know exactly how much it's costing them. Um, and it's overly complicated and requires the creation of a whole bureaucracy. So of, of all of those carbon tax options, cap and trade is probably the worst one. But no matter how it's imposed, it really hurts businesses, it hurts families, it, it hurts Ontario's economy, especially in the context of an international environment where our biggest trading partner, the United States, is not going to be seeing a carbon tax. You know, our, our biggest trading partner and our biggest competitor, um, you know, we, we're just handing a huge advantage to, to the U.S. And, and the thing that gets me in all of this, if you disagree or if you challenge, you're a fossil fuel bur- fuel burning pig. It's like you're anti-green. It's like, no, 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 no. We're not. None of us are anti-green. We're all green. I mean, everybody is so green now. The green pro- uh, party doesn't even have a platform anymore. So, you know, all parties are green. It's not about that. But that's the government. That, that's the default position that when government goes to, if you challenge or ask questions about crossing T's and dotting I's, they, they label you as... Uh, as you know, a, a supporter of Trump. Yeah, I mean it's it's a red herring um, to talk to to call people who oppose what's essentially a tax policy to call them climate change deniers. I mean, even the staunchest advocate for carbon tax has to admit that um, imposing a tax in Canada is not going to change the global climate. I mean, every I mean it's unreasonable to believe that and to question the efficacy of a tax that's going to do a lot of damage to Ontario's economy for no benefit whatsoever. I mean, the the only response that they can give is to call you names, say you're a climate change denier, but really all you're doing is questioning whether a policy will work or not. Christine Van Gein is with us Canadian Taxpayers Federation Ontario director. Christine as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. TD Bank, just the latest to come out with a report in regards to the new minimum wage increase. They say the $15 minimum wage could cost the economy up to 90,000 jobs. Are we hearing more pros than cons or cons than pros to the minimum wage uh, increase? Uh, how do we wade through all of this? To bring in, uh, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Uh, always appreciated. Um, it seems we are hearing a lot of negative about this. Right. Uh, is this balancing out? Uh, is this 
Is this uh, worth it? Is it good for Ontario, or or is this uh, big business? Is this business ca- uh, crying wolf? Yeah. Well, there's a lot in that little question you asked. So let me start here. Are we getting a balance? No. You're hearing much more negative news of late uh, for two reasons. First, the uh, deadline, if you will, of increasing to $14 an hour is January 1st. This is more or less October 1st. So as time is running out, those people who want to either stop it or slow it down have increased the pressure on the government. Those people who are in favor of this, they don't really feel they need to make a case for a couple of reasons. First, Premier Wynne has said this is going to happen, so they don't need to try to change your mind. Uh, as well, they feel that uh, since it's going to happen, they're going to sit back and bask in whatever glow happens after the fact. Those people who are raising the stakes on this have, have chosen to increasingly shout, and they shout louder and louder, and they will continue to shout until there really is absolutely a point of no return. Now, just to be clear on this, the bill that increases the minimum wage has received first reading in our provincial parliament. It is scheduled to get second reading any time now. It could be this week, it could be next week, and then third reading is done. It's a done deal. So over the summer, they've been collecting feedback. You've had lots of feedback. The hope is that they might make the, provi- the provincial liberals might make some changes in the bill before second reading. No sign of that. If there are no changes in second reading, it's highly, highly, highly unusual there'd be any changes before third reading. So there will come a point in time where the shouting is likely going to stop when they can't change it, but because they feel they've got that window, that's why they're yelling at the moment. Is this about increasing the minimum wage, Marvin, or is it the speed in which it's being done? Well, that's a very good question. So there certainly are people out there who've been arguing against this, uh, that this is just a bad idea, period, full stop. Increasingly what we're hearing, and this is true of both, say, the the uh, TD report that you spoke of, but also one released by the Chambers of Commerce, is to say, we like the idea, but you're doing it too fast. Slow it down, implement it rather than by 2019, implement it by, say, 2021. Just give us a little more time to do this, uh, and we're in a better shape that way. So will the government listen to that? I mean, obviously the Financial Accountability Office has also stepped up on this point. Are they listening? So I'm going to say no for two reasons. First, uh, uh, Kathleen Wynne is concerned about next June's provincial election. Uh, I think she sees this almost as one of her legacy issues. And so if she were to uh, slow this down and, let's say, on January 1st, take the minimum wage to, to $12 an hour or 11.50 or something like that, and then say all the future increases are scheduled for January 1st of 192021, and then she's not reelected next June, uh, no guarantee that the next, go- next government uh, elected won't reverse all of this. And she doesn't want it reversed. She wants this to be part of her legacy. The second side of this, which is political, is uh, she's hoping that people who, um, I guess I'll say it this like this way, who view the world in more liberal terms, in this case small L liberal terms, will see her as a champion and they'll say, well, gosh, now I'm a little conflicted. I wanted to vote her out because of the electricity problems, but now the electricity rates are coming down a bit, and now she's doing this for the poor, and she's doing this for, say, students by reducing tuition for some students. Gosh, you know, I kind of like where she's coming now from social policies, and she's going to give them a reason to reelect her. So there's a lot of political motivation in here to do this and do this quickly and sort of ignore these complaints coming from other people. Can she slowly wiggle her way out of this simply by adopting a lot of the NDP's uh, platform? (laughs) 
Well, right. Ask Andrea Horvath this, and she she's says, not happy about it. You're taking all my exactly. What am, what am I going to run on then? And I think again, well, Kathleen, when this is this is all very politically motivated, she's trying to draw a stark contrast between her and the party she fears the most, which is the Conservatives. Although the NDP have run this province under one time under Bob Ray, generally speaking, we the electorate vote between the conservatives and liberals, and we tend to bounce from one extreme to another. She's trying to draw a real sharp distinction between herself and Patrick Brown and the conservatives, and she's more than happy to steal a bit from the NDP playbook to make it all happen. What comes after this discussion? What comes after this is implemented? Does it all go away? Does it continue? When will we know if this has worked or not worked? Right. If, if you don't mind, I want to just, just answer another thing before we go there, and that's, the, say, the TD report or the Financial Accountability Office. I would encourage everyone to read these reports very carefully. Don't read the the media reports of them go to the actual report itself. Now, the TD report is very interesting. I know the headline said that the minimum wage would cost the economy 80 or 90,000 jobs, but if you read it all through, what they're saying is they believe the minimum wage is going to slow the Ontario growth rate over the next three or four years. Right. And that if the economy had grown at, we'll say, a standard rate, uh, we would create jobs at one rate. Because it's going to grow at a slower rate, we're going to create jobs at a lower rate. So we're not actually losing jobs. We're not going to create as many as we would have otherwise. And this all comes back to the speed of the implementation, though, does it not? It does. I mean- but, but this is a fine distinction. It's not that 80,000 people are going to be kicked out of work or 90,000 mm-hmm. people are going to be kicked out of work. It's just that these nice people believe more jobs would have been created if you had slowed the minimum wage. Now, this is really hard to predict. This is all about modeling. Uh, we're boldly going someplace that the economy has never gone before. Uh, no one's ever seen this big of a jump in the minimum wage, uh, at least not in Ontario's history. And as you might guess, to make these assumptions or to make these calculations, you have to make a boatload of assumptions, some of which may prove to be true, some which may not. Then there may be interaction effects. Oh, I didn't realize that if I gave those people more money, it would do this, it would do something else. So I don't blame anyone who's been making these predictions. I'm not saying they're evil-spirited people. But it isn't so much that this minimum wage is going to take jobs out of the economy. It's more the case the economy wouldn't generate as many jobs. And I want to make clear about that. And one other quick thing I think people need to know about in this discussion, uh, Ontario, uh, the rate of people who earn a minimum wage, right now it's 9% of workers who earn a minimum wage. Mm-hmm. 91% do not. Now, we have the highest rate of minimum wage earners of any province in Canada. In Alberta, poor old Alberta has gone through a recession for the last few years. Only 2% of people in Alberta earn the minimum wage there. Even in Atlantic Canada, which we often think of as a depressed place, only 8% of people earn the minimum wage there. It's 9% here. Uh, And so, you know, again, raising minimum wage is going to help more people than you might have thought otherwise. Now, to your question about... Let me interrupt here, Marvin. What does that mean, though, that Ontario's... uh, I know what it means, but what does it say that Ontario has more minimum wage jobs than, say, those other provinces that you mentioned? Why is that? We've got more people employed in the service sector, and that service sector is based primarily on our cities. So big cities... 
we we eat out more in big cities. We recreate more in big cities, and and therefore, you know, we create these more minimum wage opportunities in these higher urban populations. In more rural populations, you don't do it. This is one of the reasons why I say Saskatchewan has such a low rate of minimum wage workers. Uh, and then another little wrinkle about minimum wage workers, especially in the hospitality sector, is the wage that gets reported to the government versus the wage that somebody earns. You know, you earn minimum wage, but you also have these things called tips available to you because tips are not reported terribly religiously. I'm not saying people are cheating, but people don't always report every last dollar they make in tips. It's hard to know then what impact this is all going to have. Uh... Uh, lots, as you mentioned, uh, Kathleen Wynne has been, um, uh, you know, loading up the uh, the uh, pre-election uh, yeah, wish, yep. wish list, throwing out the bonbons. Yep. Um, can Wynne pay for all of this? Well, here's the great thing about increasing the minimum wage. So there's another group of people, poverty advocates. They're not unhappy about this, but because only 9% of the population earns the minimum wage, uh, and it's only 40% of minimum wage earners who are really supporting their family on this. In other words, one group of minimum wage workers are sort of teens working at the grocery store. Otherwise, there's another group in their 20s that are often working these minimum wage jobs to help pay for education. Only 40% of minimum wage earners are actually using it to support the family. So those poverty advocates say, well, thanks for this, but you know there are some other things you could do as the government that would help poverty even more. The difference is that increasing the minimum wage doesn't cost the government one dime. It doesn't affect their budget. Everything else that you'd want to do, like this new guaranteed income program that's being piloted here in Hamilton, that's going to cost you money. So given the state of the provincial budget, Kathleen Wynne was looking for something that might be a broadly popular idea, but one that didn't cost her budget anything. That's the brilliance of moving the minimum wage. Uh, interesting uh, point from a uh, email. Uh, Cameron writes, I think that the increase will cause a temporary bump, but eventually the economy will rebalance and the minimum wage will put people back to where they are now. Well, it could. And certainly that could be the case because remember, again, if you're earning $15 now and suddenly everyone else is, you're going to say, I want it to be 17 or 18 or 19, whatever it happens to be. Mm. Uh, and I don't think anyone views this as an absolute panacea. But it's also fair to say that the minimum wage was frozen for a long time in the 90s, early 2000s, and although there's been some catch-up since, one could argue that if you took past wages and extended them forward, that we're still a little behind of where we should have been. Uh, so, you know, this, this is simply uh, an attempt to make it happen. One other thing that critics are saying, Scott, and, th- and this is not likely to happen, but this also is great logic, there's a sort of a sledgehammer approach here. We're increasing the minimum wage for all of Ontario. And yet, uh, living wages vary by the city you're in. Hamilton is actually one of the cheapest cities to live in in Ontario. The average wage in Hamilton, if I take all the employed people and divide it by the number of people, people earn on average $25 an hour here. In Toronto, the average is $34 an hour. So it might very well be that what we should be talking about is increasing minimum wage to that $15 threshold for Toronto, but maybe it only needs to go to 13.50 in Hamilton. And and so by increasing it we're actually causing maybe hardship in smaller communities and not maybe doing enough in the biggest community. In the United States, some states have played this game. They have said in our big municipality, let's say Seattle and Washington, will have a high minimum wage. But if you're not in Seattle, you're in a more rural area, the minimum wage is different. 
that, of course, gets you into drawing lines and who has and who doesn't and, and arguments that way. But if you're looking for a fair system, one size fits all doesn't seem to be the right answer either. Considering the breakdown of that 9% and you said, uh, you know, a portion of that students, a portion of that people trying to make extra money, and then a, a portion as well that are trying to make a living, does that factor into the size of the city as well? Yeah, we, we think it would. So, why would, well, Yeah, why wouldn't it? Right. So if you're in, in uh, northeastern Ontario, you, you don't have a university community, you don't have that same student community, there actually might be more people there who are trying to live on it, whereas in Toronto, with the three universities and between them, uh, just on that alone, universities, not including post-secondary of colleges, but the universities alone, they have nearly 200,000 students uh, in those three universities in Toronto. Mm. There's a lot of them out there uh, trying to find extra money to top up and pay for their education. So these, these are all questions, and that's why it's a very, very complicated issue. I don't want to take away, I think Kathleen Wynne is taking a very interesting political gambit. She, she needs something to help leverage a re-election, and this certainly could contribute towards it. Um, and it's also quite possible that all of these models may be wrong, that when it actually happens, because again, remember, historically, when we've increased minimum wages, we've never seen these big disastrous things hit our economy. This could be the first time it does happen, but it would be setting a precedent in the past it's come through with very few ripples as we've gone on. All right, I can't let you go, Marvin, without chatting about uh, Bombardier yeah. and the fight uh, over taxation in the United States. They want to sell planes to, to uh, airlines in the United States. Now the U.S. has imposed a huge tax on that because the Canadian industry is subsidized. Is that enough to warrant this tax? And if that's the case, why doesn't the U.S. subsidize theirs the way the Canadian government subsidizing Bombardier? Well, in fact, it does. So the two big airline makers in the United States are Boeing and and um, uh, sure, now I've lost the other ones, the people who make the other aircraft. Anyway, it's not important. They do subsidize them through their defense spending. They spend $60, $80 billion a year with these airlines. They can write off a lot of R&D against that, which then makes their commercial airlines that much easier. We all subsidize in some way or another. The allegations came from Boeing. Basically what Boeing was saying was that these planes that were sold to Delta for around $20 million apiece uh, were being subsidized by Quebec's investment and by the federal government's uh, grant of a low-income loan. They put forward evidence to the Department of Commerce that, that needed a, um, a duty of 80%, 80% to even up the playing field. In other words, those planes should have been priced at $36 million apiece. Of course, Bombardier submitted theirs. Other people submitted theirs. The Department of Commerce looked at this all and late yesterday said, you know, we feel these things have been improperly subsidized, so we're going to impose a duty of, now wait for it, 209%. Yeah. That means a plane that's priced at $20 million, they think, should be sold at $64 million. What's also odd about this is Boeing doesn't have a plane. Boeing actually doesn't compete against Bombardier in this space. When Delta was making its decision to buy these planes, it was us versus the Brazilians, Ombrer, and they chose the Canadians. So what the hell is Boeing doing in this? Well, I think Boeing read the tea leaves with Donald Trump's election, seeing that there was this new Buy America policy, and said, let's do a test case. This ruling yesterday is a preliminary ruling. There's to be a final ruling in six months, which is in February. And by the way, this could be reversed come February. As well, it actually doesn't cost Bombardier anything at the moment because the planes they're producing for Delta, Delta wasn't going to take possession of them until late 2018. 
It also doesn't affect Bombardier selling in markets outside the United States. So selling to China, there actually was a rumor yesterday of a big deal with some Chinese airlines looking to buy these Bombardier planes. But for a company that's trying to restructure itself and pull itself out of some of its problems, yesterday was not a good day. Are there legal grounds for this? I mean, at the end of the day, is there a trade deal that says that you can't do this, you can't subsidize these industries? Well, yes. I mean, there are things unfairly, I think the phrase would be unfairly subsidize these industries. So what would happen now, and remember, let's pretend NAFTA is not being renegotiated. Uh, we, don't, we can't appeal this. This is a preliminary finding. There's no point appealing until you get the final ruling in February. But then we would work with Bombardier under NAFTA to to file a grievance, and it would then be heard by an independent tribunal. This is the independent tribunal that Donald Trump doesn't want. He feels his own department can do the job well enough, so that really these things shouldn't be appealed. We've already filed an appeal under softwood lumber where they've put special duties on this, and this is putting more fuel in the fire as we renegotiate NAFTA of why we need to have these independent tribunals settle these things and, and sort these things out. This 209% duty, I was waking up yesterday thinking 80. I don't know where they got 209% from, and it's why you can't trust an internally generated tribunal to rationalize and, and do these things fairly. By the way, Boeing is still going to have repercussions. Even though they didn't lose sales to this, I'm pretty sure you can kiss nearly $6 billion exactly. of aircraft goodbye. No way Canada is going to be supporting you now. Was this really worth it for you in the long run? Uh, can Canada leverage that, uh, the, the defense contract, and what does that mean to Boeing? Well, uh, all good questions. I don't know. Uh, maybe they thought they were, we, we were bluffing. Maybe they thought we weren't serious. I'm telling you now, over the week ahead, you're going to see Justin Trudeau step up and really push this issue. I can also tell you this is, this is um, um, uh, an issue that you're even going to find dissent in the United States. 53% of Bombardier planes use parts and assemblies made in the United States. Mm. You make it hard to buy Bombardier planes, who's going to suffer? <coughs> I mean, yes, it's some workers in Quebec, but it's workers in place in the United States. And yes, Theresa May weighed into this, the British Prime Minister, mm. because the wings are made in Northern Ireland. The president of JetBlue, airline in the United States, weighed into this. Why? He wants to buy some of these planes so they can keep low-cost flights regional flights in the United States, if you take Bombardier to the equation, I'm stuck with a more expensive alternative. Please don't do this. There's just so much insanity here. I'm hoping more rational heads will prevail, but unfortunately, rationality and a Trump administration are two words that don't go together mm. very well. Marvin Ryder, business professor at a group school of business at McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.